This is the Raider Cotton Nation podcast with your host, Alpha Mike, and our roster of co-hosts, we patrol America's law enforcement beat. We invite you today on a ride-along. Now, here's your weekly briefing on Raider Cop Nation. Transmitting high atop of Florida's peninsula at 108 feet. This is Alpha Mike, and you are listening to Raider Cop Nation. Today on our episode, we feature not what you were expecting, but nevertheless, something that will interest you. Post-traumatic syndrome disorder in policing. Since when? So, PTSD in policing since when? Episode 113. Now, I know we discussed earlier that we were going to have, based on our old uh, scheduling, we're going to have the so on CBD or miracle marijuana. I've held off on that show because I was told that there is some developments in the law enforcement field with regards to policy on these issues. A lot of these issues are dealt through the International Association of Chiefs and Police and other organizations. And they're trying to get pretty much a a little bit ahead of the curb if Congress passes anything on the federal level, which we know that's not going to happen because Congress doesn't do anything. But nevertheless, I was told to hold off and uh, it would be the end of this year, beginning of next year. So I I threw it down in the schedule further down in uh, December, but I may have to switch that into 2020. I'm still trying to check out some of the accuracy to those emails that I received on holding off. So that's still pending. So I came up with an, another episode of something that had been interesting me for a while. It was on our schedule for future uh, shows. And then the Miami Herald wrote uh, a great article on post-traumatic syndrome and policing on November 1st. And I said, you know what, I, I think I, I need to jump on this because this subject, post-traumatic syndrome, is just not going to be handled with one episode. It is something that is long overdue in the law enforcement circles as recognizing that post-traumatic syndrome does exist. And uh, we'll get into that. We'll dive into that because we got a lot to talk about. But uh, before we do that, I'm going to just run through the episode. Oh, you know what? Let's do this. Let's do the word of the week. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. We'll jump into the schedule. We'll touch on our uh, ongoing saga of the club, where today we're going to talk about the subject of the bank, and then we'll go into the main topic, which is post-traumatic syndrome. So, let's do it. The Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb, saying, You have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey. And sometimes the Lord has to direct our every steps, and we may be going in a direction that we feel is right. But the Lord tells us, You've been dwelling at this mountain long enough, and it's time to move on. To hear more on this subject, you can tune in to Test Everything 1521 right after this podcast and go to RaiderCopNation.com, hit the section that says Test Everything, and you can hear 15 minutes or less 
on this subject we just spoke about. As the Lord directs our steps, telling us you've been dwelling, dwelling too long at this mountain and uh, to take the new road. So I encourage you to listen to that. Um, on some other issues, again, uh, RaiderCopNation.com, you can always see our ongoing schedule. All you got to do is click uh, current and upcoming shows, and it will break down the page, and you can see the five topics that we have on every show. Think out of the box, which is basically thinking not in the normal settings of law enforcement. Sometimes you got to think out of the box to get things done. Training up, it's a training series. Sidebar, dealing with those political events that are trying to change law enforcement for the worst and not the best. The roll call series, it's a day-to-day operation. And, of course, the wise guy series, dealing with criminal organized crime, which is, for some reason, people's absolute obsession and favorite subject. So we talk about it here on the podcast, not to glamorize it because it all has the same ending. Guy dies, guy goes to jail, guy loses everything. But if you want to hear that story, we could, we could, you know, we'll tell you the story over and over again. Okay. So on our schedule there, on RaiderCopNation.com, you'll see, of course, we have this uh, show. We, we, we threw in here at the last second. It was known way of telling the audience prior, and that's post-traumatic syndrome uh, disorder in policing since when? And uh, then uh, after this, November 20th, we have the prayer business with the National Prayer Club in Washington, how that is just a big business, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, November 27th, again, that will uh, be the day before Thanksgiving. So the subject there is giving thanks and what you're grateful for. We all should be grateful for something, and you should prepare yourself for that gratitude into Thanksgiving. December 4th, who's the boss of the mafia? A couple of emails were sent to us about... um, Great stories. We really love the Wise Guy series. But a lot of that stuff is, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Who's, who, what's going on now? Who's in charge now? So we're going to break that down uh, in La Costa Nostra, and we're going to break down the Who's the Boss series, 116, December 4th. December 11th, Truth, Justice, and the New American Way. And uh, we possibly will have the cop on for that program. We're looking forward to that one. December 18th, uh, we have slotted in CBD. It may go there or it may be pushed down. I'll I'll let you know based on this announcement that is going to be kind of forthcoming. Um, And again, it's going to be coming from one of these national groups like the International Chiefs of Police, where they basically will be the format or the legal premise for all agencies to fall under. So didn't want to do two shows, want to do one, so want to do it the right way. So may happen on that date if, it, of course, the announcement is done before. If not, we're going to push it to 2020, let you know more in advance, and we'll have something in that place We'll move something up the totem pole into that slot. Uh, December 25th, of course, Christmas Day. It'll be the best of Raider Cop Nation podcast and uh, for the year of 2019. Five to six little episodes where we had uh, uh, one of our funniest moments or more uh, traumatic moments, you might want to say. And... um, and those would be from the 506 highest episodes of 2019. So we're putting that together for you. January 1st, also a holiday, 2020, uh, celebrating the new year. We will have praising God for another year and a short little expectation for everybody in our, our audience 
on um, maybe maybe if if they allow connecting themselves more to God. And uh, January 18th, La M, or the Mexican Mafia, that is episode 121. And we're going to talk about an organization that started many, many years ago, but how sophisticated they became and, and how self-educated their leadership was. Fascinating uh, revelation to me during a lot of the research for that. So that's January 8th of 2020, La M Mexican Mafia. January 15th, uh, roll call. And uh, that's basic what police officers and corrections do, roll call. But we're going to have a little insight of for the civilians on how that works, and we're going to have the Wonder Woman back for that one. That will be January 15th, and um, roll call episode 122. January 22nd, 2020, Gunsmith, episode 123, with Pistol Pete, and we have missed Pistol Pete for quite a while. So he's gonna, we're going to have him on, and we're going to talk a little bit about the profession of gunsmithing and uh, what can, if a person wants to follow up on that, what they can expect to uh, get involved in and really deal, deal with some issues. And uh, you have to have a... Uh, a certain mindset to be a gunsmith. So we're going to have uh, Pistol Pete share that experience with us the 22nd of January. And we wrap up January with uh, January 29th uh, with the cop. Conservative versus liberal leaders in law enforcement, the difference and difficulties. And we're going to look at that conservative uh, leader in law enforcement or chief versus uh, the liberal ones that are popping up all over the place, self-appointed by their governments, their mayors. And here they are with these crazy lunatic um, decisions or ideas. I've even heard some as radical as not having weapons at all. So if that doesn't tell you that they're lunatics, I don't know what does. So that's our lineup. It may change, as I said, with the CBD one based on uh, what's coming down the pike. All right, so we got that out of the way. We have had some tremendous insight <coughs> from listeners with regards to our original broadcast in episode 109 on the club. That episode we discussed an organization that I specifically was a part of uh, for many years, about 20, and as a result of how we did things. There are clubs out there that do similar to what we have done, maybe not as sophisticated, um, but there are some that just, they just do the yearly party to dance, the seltzer events, and that's about it. But whatever the reason these organizations exist, that's what we are dealing with in this ongoing saga of the club. When we did episode 109, myself and the cop, it, there was a lot of interest from people to expand upon it, kind of forcing me to do a second episode. But I said, I just don't want to do a second episode so I'll kind of talk each talk about each subject for until the end of the year on the subject of the club, my experience of 20 years and how it worked. And I come up, you know, with a subject and I tell you a little bit about it, about 15, 10, 15 minutes, and then we're going to the to the main topic. Now the drawback to some of this is people are telling me now, well, you know, you, I, I, you know, I appreciate I, a lot of interest in the club. That episode one hundred and nine is all of a sudden jumped the charts, so people are listening to these shows, they're listening to the club, they're saying, wait a minute, what? I got to get to the first one, so they're jumping in, they're jumping on board to one hundred and nine. A lot of ears are listening to what I have to say, but again, 
we're going to do this uh, all the way into the end of the year. Then February 12th, I believe it is, of 2020, we're going to have the second part of the club. Well, I kind of put it all together for you in a nice package. And then we talked about the seven-year rule, and uh, it would come. It would be a March of 2023 when you come back and listen to the best show on the club that you've ever heard in your life. But in the meantime, my memory's a little jarred, not not up to date, and uh, trying to piece everything. So that research is going to take probably another three and a half years, but it'll happen. All right, so. Our subject on the club, we have uh, done a lot on the subject. Our first, uh, of course, we talked many things with the cop on episode 109. Encourage you to listen to that. And then on 110, I talked about structure and the importance of the club having an actual structure. Because without an actual structure, uh you're kind of like just spinning in your wheels. Purpose. What was the purpose of the club? A lot of times, you know, clubs tell you, well, our purpose is fraternal and this. They give you every generic term. But listen, people just don't sign up for things because they believe in a Christmas party. They have personal gain and personal investment that they're trying to capitalize on. So the purpose of the organization has to be spelt out and not so much in your constitution, but in the mindset of those that are joining. And then uh, we spoke about contacts in episode 112, right before this one. And now we're going to deal in with uh, this is a little offspring of contacts. In 113, we're going to talk about the bank. Now, contacts, we, we discussed that they were important because you had to have certain elements of how to run your club or your organization, and you had to have those important contacts that were going to help you establish those objectives. We talked about a little bit, I believe, about the congressmen and so forth. And just to give you an example of some of the contacts. Today, we're talking about the bank. Now, we're going to talk about two banks. Actually, the actual bank that the club needs and how those operations work with 501c, 3c4s, and a um, tax-free environment. Very complicated, very um, nitpicking. During um, President Obama's administration, 501c3s and c4s were under attack and they were being pulled left and right for what the government was saying, oh, political affiliations. So it was a good way to do house cleaning for the federal government with 501c3s and c4s. So very complicated um, it started to become more and more of a hassle than anything that at one point, at least our organization thought about just, can we file something? But the, the standard was you couldn't file because you're a non-for-profit organization. So they kind of threw you in this trying to figure out uh, how to be on pins and needles and wait for the government to accuse you of something. So uh, that's one part of the bank. And, you know, you can need that contact with that bank and uh, payroll deductions and all those other good things. The organization at um, different levels of the club. Remember, our club, or the club that I belong to, had different names at different times. At, uh, the height of our... Uh, income on dues, we were excelling in the way in the area of about $120,000, $125,000 a year. Now, it's not a whole lot of money, but it ain't chump change either, especially if I go back all those years. Today, it might not sound like a whole lot, but 
uh, that money kept the uh, ball rolling. There was uh, other aspects. We, we had the annual party. We had uh, uh, lawyers on retainer. And uh, that was a waste of freaking time. I don't want to get into that right now. And uh, and we always try to give back to the membership. So I don't want to get into too much of what we had because this uh, episode of this uh, overview is more so how clubs should formulate themselves. So when we look at the bank, we're also looking at how to bank those contacts. Now, one of the things... Uh, very important I'll kind of wrap this up in five minutes is the club had to have individuals that had the mindset of doing favors for important people that were part of your contacts and holding those chips for a later time and having a high level, a high threshold to accept that favor in return. So let me explain. If, if, if we did something for somebody, we weren't just going to, you know, the next day ask them, hey, you think you can uh, do us a favor with uh, ABC? We had to think about it. It had to be calculated. It had to benefit the majority of the membership. And in turn, I, in 20 years, had so much bank. I was overwhelmed with so much bank chips that I was ready to cash in. I remember my buddy Jake that passed away used to tell me, I mean, how many, he would tell me all the time, how many chips are you going to keep in your pocket? When are you going to start taking some of those chips out? And I wouldn't. To me, uh, as I said in the last podcast about an individual chief that was out to get me, and um, a lot of the people that were close knew that we had a lot of these chips, would tell me, man, you just throw a couple of chips and that's the end of this. But I said no because the chips are bigger than one person. So you had to have that mindset. And the, the mindset being these chips were emergency buttons that had to be pushed at the right time. Because if you pushed them for nonsense, then you wouldn't have any chips. So the importance of the bank was no when to do the favors, how to do the favors, complete those favors with excellence, and hold on to that chip. Holding on to that chip means holding on to the relationship. You just can't disappear into thin air either. They still need to see you. They still need to see that the club is active. And that way, that chip is relevant. If the organization of the club disappears or changes in leadership, then they've got to be reminded that there's a new organization, a new leadership in position that uh, know about the chip. Or you would keep one of the old board members around to remind these individuals of the chips that they owed. So it was strategic. It was important. In my 20 years, I was always a part of the leadership. So we never really dealt with an absence of the leadership in order to cash. But there was a lot of people that never paid back because I just didn't see it fit. So you got to know when to cash it, how to cash it. And for me, to cash a chip for the club, it meant to me that we were going to grow in size, not shrink. So we were going to a different level. So that was a high threshold, and I would only use it for that. So important to know. A lot of people want to window dress that these organizations, associations are all about uh, scholarship funds and parties. I remember we had a three-star 
in charge of the agency and uh, brand new to our section, came in, started pulling all the organizations in a meeting and excluded from the union and said, I want to have a conversation about what you guys are all about. And I sat there and proceeded to hear all this bullshit coming out of people's mouth about scholarship funds and all that. And they're about uh, the biggest bunch of phonies because they were just in meetings uh, days before, huddled up in people's offices, trying to shake them down for other things. So what they were, their perception of what they were telling this three-star in in this meeting was bullshit. And he knew it, and he picked it up right away. So if you're going to bullshit the guy you got to talk to later he lost respect for you so my response to him was that we do a multiple uh multiple amount of things depending the circumstances we respond to them another question he had was uh what was our membership count and i said i'm not a liberty to discuss that with you we don't discuss our membership count with nobody outside the membership so for the, for the rest of the groups that were there, they didn't talk like we talked. They didn't act like we acted. They dealt in other ways. A lot of them didn't have to be hard because they were being fed with golden spoons. We weren't. So we were combat veterans fighting to get what we wanted. So the importance of the bank, hold on to that chip, Put it in your bank and get ready to cash it in to grow as a group, not shrink. All right. Our focus today is on episode 113. We're discussing post-traumatic syndrome in law enforcement. And the title of the show, of course, is Post-Traumatic Syndrome of PTSD in policing since when? Policing has been around for so long, and all of a sudden, all of this, this new term came out of nowhere. And that's what we're going to discuss today. So without any hesitation, let's honk the horn and let's call the clowns. It's time to talk about episode 113, Post-Traumatic Syndrome Disorder in Policing since when? Officers in the United States, approximately 900,000, one in five, are at risk of coming down with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Now, post-traumatic stress disorder is what is called for clinically. But recently, during uh, research for this uh, episode, I saw a psychologist that came up with a different definition, one that she says she prefers and explained why, and I love the idea, and that is post-traumatic stress injuries. Because disorder means something that pretty much will never be corrected, injury you can recover from. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. And one in five officers are at risk of developing this during their career. Now, I'm going to go into some more numbers. But as I always say, I don't want to get overexcited about statistics because they change. 
and people will hold you to an original statistic forever. For example, there's 11 million undocumented illegal aliens in America. How long have you been hearing that crap? About 40 years. So we know it's not 11, it's way higher. So I don't want to get caught up in those numbers, but the, the numbers I will discuss is just for you to get an idea during the episode. So we talked about 900,000 sworn officers. One in five are at risk. Now, from the 900,000, 19% have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder or stress injury. And as a result, that's, that's a lot of people that are in this pool. From... The other statistic is 34% suffer from symptoms, but those symptoms are not enough to classify them in PTSD or PTSI. So they have the symptom, okay, we, we, you've, got a, you've got X amount of them, but it's not enough to give them that diagnosis. So they're, they're there. So a bunch of questions of how do they determine these things. And, of course, it is the study of psychology. And I had the pleasure in my career to work with some real good psychiatrists and psychologists. And it is a profession of caring. I know so many of them not only on a professional level, but on that personal level as well, that I could tell you they are good-hearted people. Their obstacles have always been trying to understand law enforcement officers because it is a closed society. So if you're a law enforcement officer or retired, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're a civilian, you don't. Get closer, sit down relax, and pay attention closely to what I'm going to tell you. Law enforcement officers are somewhat schizophrenic in behavior. They don't trust civilians. They have a very close-knit society of friends. Uh, Whoever is not law enforcement, really, they'd rather not have them enter their homes. They are paranoid in the sense that they're always scanning their environment. They're always looking for a tactical advantage. If they go to a restaurant, their backs cannot be towards the door. It has to be, they have to be facing the door and blase, blase, blase. So their heightened awareness levels are very high. They're very uh, analytical as far as observing people, and who's good, who's bad. In other words, uh, they have a sixth sense. They can look at somebody, this is, this, guy, this is garbage, because they see so many people on a daily basis. Now, I'm not here to tell you it's right or wrong telling you how they act. So one of the ways of dealing with post-traumatic syndrome or, or stress disorder is it's important to understand who the clientele are. They work in areas and around people that are dangerous, that are trying to hurt them, and that they have to succumb these individuals to arrest or stop them from any threatening force towards them. So right there, there's a heightened level of awareness at all times. So we look at the numbers and we look at, you know, 900,000, 19% are diagnosed with this. But the industry itself of policing, when I say policing, I mean police and corrections have been very slow in actually pinpointing what post uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or stress injury is really all about. 
What excited me about the article that I'm going to post on the show notes from the Miami Herald that was titled uh, Haunted by Violence, Some uh, Cops Struggle with PTSD, Now Miami-Dade is Assessing the Toll. So it's the beginning of an agency or community of agencies to acknowledge uh, we have a problem. And as a result, though what they're learning is going into statistical gathering data, and at the end of all that, there's going to have to be money, funding, and a whole lot of help for this community that didn't exist before. The article, to me, more uh, infamous than just that, was uh, straight to the point as it interviewed uh, three officers that were veterans, I believe all three, if I remember correctly, were retired, and how they basically said during their era, yeah, I had to have the suck it up mentality. The you went through critical situations, critical times. I remember one of the officers in the article said that his an entire career of thirty years, he only recalls one time when his supervisor asked him on a specific incident after the incident, was he okay? And I can also attest to that. It's it was frowned upon if you raised your hand and you basically said that uh, you were having issues. So we look at New York, New York City, NYPD with nine suicides to date and in 2019, some active, some retired. It's a lot of issues that they might have had. I'm not trying to pinpoint why they did uh, those suicides. But hopelessness and helplessness is going to be there. So the officers need to be dealt with so they don't feel hopeless and helpless. So that's very important in in this struggle. Uh, there's a lot of uh, parts of the article as well that were reassuring that help is on the way. And I think this is starting to become more and more of a national standard that uh, they understand they cannot continue at this pace. Officers are dealing with more stressful and dangerous situations than ever before, and ignoring the past has had consequences too in a lot of retirement suicides. I believe uh, this year I did an episode um similar about that and I said the numbers were down but that doesn't mean because the numbers down it went away it could mean that the year before they were very high so we have to keep that in mind as well so there's a symptoms that officers are going to experience during their careers now as they go up their careers they have more and more challenges of assignments but every assignment is dangerous. You cannot say, I don't do anything over there. Every assignment is dangerous. Every assignment it has its own evil. But some of the symptoms that are going to be noticed at home is uh, they're going to be hypervigilant. We discussed that. They're going to have short fuses. Uh, they don't sleep due to nightmares. Uh, they self-medicate. When I'm talking about self-medicate, I'll take this. Uh, so-and-so gave me a pill, relaxes me. Or oh, I'm going to uh, drink a little bit of wine. It's only a glass, only two glasses. What, uh, I like whiskey. or And we go on. Uh, the legal stuff. And this is why the miracle marijuana was so important when we, we were going to do that. Because there's a lot of self-medication or medicating in police work. So if anybody has, doesn't know, and they're, they're totally naive, in police work there are a lot of people that are alcoholics. So that's a part of the self-medication. Uh, 
the traumatic experiences that they've had, if violent in nature, a shooting, a stabbing, or whatever it is, uh, some threat coming towards them, that threat, I, I remember early on in my career learning about that in a class where the instructor said that during a life-threatening event, things would appear to be going in slow motion and larger than life. So if the person has a weapon, the, 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 the weapon would look twice as large. If you're looking at their hands or their fist, it would look twice as large because their eyes are fixated on that. And I remember saying, well, that sounds kind of ridiculous until I experienced over and over again. It is a slow-motion film in fast motion. I've experienced it. If you haven't experienced it, don't say anything. Don't even say a word. Just continue listening. After this event that you might have experienced as an officer, you're going to go in now uh, during that event into fight or flight. You're either going to fight your way out of it or you're going to flee. Now, in my era, you didn't see a lot of fleeing because fleeing dealt with cowardness and agencies dealt with cowards. Today, and I'm not trying to uh, step on anybody by by saying that they're less than what we were in our era. But today you might see someone flee in the opposite direction where we dealt with it with cowardness and you're out of here. Today they're probably dealt with hugs and going to therapy on Monday. Everything will be better. Not saying if it's better or worse. I'm just stating my opinion. So after the event that individual is going to go through survival mode. Survival mode is one, two, three days maybe of them reliving the event in their heads in slow motion, thinking of everything, uh, placing themselves on the guilty platform, saying, I could have done this or I should have done that. And they replay it over and over and over in their heads, and it becomes more and more uh, anxious for them, angry. So anxiety starts to build. This is the beginning of the post-traumatic syndrome that is happening. Now, the University of Central Florida has a, a restore project that they do, and I don't. I'm going to post that on the. Um, show notes. I don't want to get too much into it because um, I don't know the after effects of these things really working. Sounds interesting, I can tell you that. But it's um, dealing with those smells that these first responders deal with, like burnt flesh. And they will, uh, during their therapy sessions, give them a sniff of burnt flesh, and they're going to replay those moments of uh, that stress that they lived in their lives. They're trying to get the chemistry of their brains to, to know that they can go beyond that smell. Um, the first time I ever heard about burnt flesh and all that was from, I believe, a documentary of Vietnam how Vietnam vets were saying you know, one of the things that stuck out to them was just a, the smell of burnt flesh. So they're living constantly with that in their minds. The chemical imbalance is there. Every time they smell anything that resembles burnt flesh, it triggers. So uh, this uh, project, uh, UCF uh, Restore Project, they basically deal with these elements. They did it during the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, uh, where I believe 49 people died. And the first responders, man, I mean, I, I, I want to say right after the event, and, and God bless all those officers that responded, 
they immediately started raising their hands saying, I got issues. And uh, it takes a, a, a lot of courage to do that, and they did it. And um, I, I think it's the right time to do it. A lot of old timers probably way before them had told them, you know, uh, we dealt with stuff that we couldn't really talk about. They weren't, that was a very traumatic uh, situation that happened in their career responding to that Pulse uh, attack up in Orlando and looking at all, all that blood, gore, uh, 49 dead bodies. Uh, the stench uh, uh, there uh, must have been outrageous. And they started to lift up their hand and say, I'm, I'm having issues. And um, thank God they did because uh, it's really that one case I'd like to point to. not saying it's the only case, but I'd like to point to that one case as being the one that really, really started triggering some of the attention on what's going on with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and law enforcement. A couple of other articles that are going to be on the show notes is uh, the International uh, Association of Chiefs of Police on how they're dealing with some of this. An organization that uh, really cares about officers and uh, they have partnered with uh, psychologists and psychiatrists that can join their um, committees on this. And I want to get back to the point of having psychologists and psychiatrists working in your agency for debriefing because we're kind of pushing up against the clock here. And it is a must. Now, I know my agency took a long time to do this, but when they did it, they did it right, and they had a lot of avenues to help out. But then because of budget cuts, they let some of them go, and it's still there now. But it's overwhelming. There is a ratio between psychologist or psychiatrist and patient, and it's usually a 1 to 100, somewhere in that ballpark. So when you have an agency larger than that, and you're dealing in the thousands, you can overwhelm a psychiatrist or a psychologist on all these uh, debriefings that they're basically doing, making sure that the officers are uh, fit for duty, not having any experiences, and some of them are checking themselves. And that didn't exist when I started. There's no place to check in. You checked in, you checked out. They basically said, ah, he's crazy. Get him out of here. I remember right after Hurricane Andrew, there's an officer that uh, worked in uh, Miami-Dade, and he, he, he was suffering from post-traumatic syndrome. And uh, he had worked multiple weeks of Alpha Bravo, which is 12-hour shifts, no days off, no electricity. It was horrible during that era. Uh, all the officers during the era of Hurricane Andrews, the weeks and months felt like decades, years and decades. Uh, simple things like washing clothes and ice and water uh, comforts that you had before you don't have, and people were in basic survival mode. And uh, during Hurricane Andrew, uh, this specific officer just lost it. And uh, if I remember correctly, they were just driving in circles in their police car with the sirens on and uh, very aggressive and angry and so forth. And I uh, don't know what the outcome was for that officer, but I remember reading about it and saying how many more are ready to hit the emergency lights and drive around in circles. That's how bad it was. So there was a psychologist in the agency at that time, but the ratio wasn't there. You had way too many people suffering all kinds of anxiety and stress disorders at the same time for one individual to deal with was was uh, was ludicrous. 
confidentiality was very important. I remember a psychologist that has worked for over 30 years in an agency and great individual, great human being. Um, my hat goes off to him because he could have made a fortune in, in this profession, but he chose to serve these officers. So God bless him for that. But he um, basically spelled out the areas where if an officer's having a traumatic experience and they're on the scene, they may be experiencing thinking uh, suicide ideation, thinking about killing themselves or expressing it in some way. And all of a sudden he kicks into gear. They call him out to the scene. I remember him saying in a debriefing section, I will talk to this guy as long as it takes. If it takes me 10, 12, 20, 30 hours, I will talk to them and talk to them because my objective is for them to check themselves in, not for me to check them in, because there's a difference in the statute. So if they want to keep their job, they got to check themselves in. We still have a long way to go with helping first responders. One thing we can't do is uh, judge them, make them guilty before they even raise their hand. I remember a traumatic experience that I had at work and my good friend fooling around. You know, was, he was a constant joker. He basically said that, yeah, I feel traumatic. I want to go home. And it was just fooling around. They told me, you know, stop, stop acting like a jerk. But uh, they sent us to debriefing. And when we had to go somewhere downtown, we got there. I remember he got there first and I showed up a little bit later. He was fuming, red, and he was just up in arms. Because the person that was going to see us was a, psych, uh, a social worker. And during the episode, uh, I told the social worker, look, you're going to do debriefing for me and for him. Can you do them together? Well, that's not really practical. I go, well, he's a little upset. might be work better. Okay, so they put us in the same room and ask a couple of questions, you know. And we kind of answered. And I remember my friend basically saying, are you a licensed social worker? And how the individual avoided the question. It was a complete joke. And it was just something that they put together because there was nothing in place at that time. Probably the um, mid-90s. And it reminded me of the movie Joker when uh, the Joker would meet this social worker uh, on a regular basis and towards the end of the movie, uh, spoiler alert, by the way, so hit the alarm, they would basically say, You've, you haven't listened to me all these years. And although that was one session we had, it was all BS. Today, it is more sophisticated. Officers need to reach out they need to go through their private insurance if they have to. But don't sit there and be convicted of this post-traumatic syndrome in your life. Don't go through the nightmares. Don't take this stuff home with you for 30, 40, 50 years and because it will influence your, your family, your children, and everything else. Deal with it. First responders are people. They have fears, they have moments where they're weak, and they have to have that help, just like everybody else. I know we like to make our first responders superhuman, that, uh, you know, you see them eating at a restaurant, and you look and you go, my God, you, you see 400 people looking at him like he has time to eat, but they're individuals, and... God knows that the statistics are there on how many of them have lost their homes due to bad habits, 
bad manners, drinking, all these symptoms that we read here today, which are either post-traumatic syndrome uh, exhibiting itself or about to exhibit itself. They need help from a professional and not live like that. And any agency that deals with them differently, shame on them. Any agency that doesn't have something in place, shame on them too. So whether your agency is five people or 5,000 or 35,000, you've got to have things in place. NYPD right now is scratching their heads. They got nine suicides, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. They're putting the resources there. But how many more have to go? Okay. One of the cases uh, from one of those officers said, at least the media reported it as a possibility of bullying in the station. Don't know if that's true or not, but I know that uh, officers have a sick sense of humor sometimes, and when an officer makes a mistake on a scene, you will live that over and over for many, many years. But not all of us are that tough to, to deal with those issues. So post-traumatic stress disorder or stress injury, I like that term also, you can recover from it. But don't wait too long to raise your hand and say, I need help. You can ask your coworkers, you can ask your supervisor, you can go higher up in the chain, you can trigger your own personal insurance, but don't sit on the fence with this too long because you're going to start exhibiting other signs. And when you start dipping in self-medicating yourself, you've lost the battle. And you're going into enemy territory you're never going to get out of alive. And uh, it is important for you to recognize when enough is enough and you need help. No shame in the game. It can happen to any of us. And we know that uh, we have to have an outer uh, tough uh, persona when we deal with things. And that's good, and that's well and good, and you should always have your game face on. But we're also human. And we bring our personal experiences and our professional ones. We Sometimes they intermixed in an event, and you start breaking down with your emotion. What are you talking about, Alpha? I don't understand. Well, you see a child that's dead on a scene, and it reminds you of yours. And that's how those two uh, worlds come together. So don't let them come together. Seek help. I like this uh, episode. I like this theme. I am going to continue it. We're going to follow this very closely because the military has done an outstanding job and they can do a lot better on post-traumatic syndrome. There was an era there where they were killing each other, or, or killing themselves, better said, left and right because the military was failing to recognize their debriefing uh, sessions uh, during their engagements uh, were piss poor, and as a result, uh, the, they were seeing high levels of suicide. Today, there's a little bit more attention to that. They grew from that experience. And I can only hope that law enforcement grows from these experiences and data that they're recording. And that very soon, agencies around the country are really, really paying attention to this important uh, item. So this won't be our last episode. As always, it has been my honor and my pleasure to be your host on Raider Cop Nation podcast. As always, continue to pray for yourself because without you in the game, we have nothing. Pray for your family, pray for your community, and most importantly, pray for the agencies that serve you in your community. And never forget to continue to pray for the United States of America. This is Alpha Mike, and I'm out. And guide her 
Through the night with a light from above From the mountains to the prairies To the oceans white with foam God bless America Thirteen twenty two. 